This is one of the slowest growth rates for the global economy outside outright recession in the last 40 years. There are some real risks ahead. And a lot of those risks, I think, are focused on Europe. Hello, this is the Weekly Tradecast, a podcast brought to you by UNCTAD, the UN's trade and development body. I'm Sarah Toms. We're exploring how major events are shaping trade and development and how that affects billions of people around the world. This week, we're looking at the UN's latest trade and development report. The good news? The global economy is growing. But the recovery looks weak as many risks remain and as many major economies struggle to get back to pre-COVID growth levels. The report warns of major challenges from inflation, debt burdens and food and energy insecurity. All of that stress is compounded by climate change and a retreat in public spending. Well, joining me now to look at the encouraging signs and the challenges ahead is Richard Coswell-Wright, an economist and author. Richard is director of UNCTAD's Globalisation and Development Strategies Division. He graduated from the University of Cambridge and is a keen Arsenal fan. Well, welcome back, Richard. Good to have you back again. Looking at the report, growth sounds great, but the recovery doesn't look so good. Is it what you expected? Not quite. I mean, growth is slower this year than last year. Growth last year was 3%. Growth we anticipate for this year is 2.4%. So there's a slowdown. I think people were even more pessimistic at the start of the year. And some of that pessimism has been misplaced. So some people are happy with a 2.4% growth rate. But that's slow. This is one of the slowest growth rates for the global economy outside outright recession in the last 40 years. We're not in a great growth situation. There are countries that are doing better than expected, of course, including the United States. And I think that has been a major reason why people are a little bit more optimistic. At the start of the year, there were genuine concerns that the US would go into recession this year. Uh, In fact, the US has outperformed most projections, including our own for this year, it should grow around 2%. And some of the bigger emerging economies have outperformed. Brazil, Mexico have certainly done better than we expected. So there are some bright spots in that picture. But overall, if you look at, I think, just about every region of the global economy, they're slower this year than last year. And overall growth is certainly down from last year. So it's a mixed picture. When we look at this medium picture, there are some real risks ahead. And a lot of those risks, I think, are focused on Europe. Europe is the sick economy of the global economy right now. It will grow this year. We estimate at 0.4%, which is very low. Mm -hmm. And its biggest economy, Germany, will actually be in recession this year. If you read the kind of press at the moment, you would think China is the problem for the global economy because it's not growing at the rate that uh, many people hoped or expected, but it's growing 10 times faster than the European economy. So the Chinese economy will grow at 4.5% this year, which is below what it should be growing in a recovery stage. That's for sure. And China has some serious headwinds that it has to deal with, including in its property market. But at least for us this year and into next year, what happens in Europe will have a very heavy consequences for the, the global economy moving forward. What's driving growth then in these countries and regions and what's holding it back? Well, I think part of the problem is that 
the main drivers of the global economy, the big three drivers, are not really in sync. So the US, China and Europe are not moving together and, and what is driving them and what is holding them back are different. Given the politics in the US, it looks likely that government spending will be lower next year than this year. And there are still concerns about how robust consumer spending is with high interest rates. Europe is different, particularly uh, private investment in, in Europe is very weak. Government spending is also relatively weak. It's difficult to know where the growth will come from, but Europe is the one to watch. China has a number of problems. Consumer spending is relatively low, and there are still serious problems in their real estate market. But China has a lot of policy space to deal with the problems. It sets itself a 5% growth target. We don't think it will reach it this year, but we suspect it will get there next year. So there's a lot of fragmentation across the main economies. And there's, you know, we know that the multilateral system, the, the big policy fora like the G20 are not really working in the way that they should be. And that makes policy coordination difficult across the main blocks. So there are real downside risks, I think, because of the ramifications of the war in Ukraine, the, the weakness of the multilateral system, which adds to the uncertainty that we're looking at. Beyond what's happening now, the report warns of many serious longer term challenges for the global economy. What are they? And what impact do you expect them to have? Compared with the period before COVID, we should be seeing strong improvements in growth and job creation and investment. And we're not. And before COVID, it was not like it was a really vibrant period. I mean, we were warning back in 2019 of the fears of a lost decade for this decade if things didn't change. And when you look at growth performance over the last couple of years and we look ahead to the next couple of years, we suspect growth will be lower than it was before COVID on average. And to understand that, we need to look not just at what's happening in the immediate situation, but we need to look at underlying factors that are holding back growth and job creation. We've identified three or four, I think, that are particularly troubling for us. One, of course, is the burden of debt. That's particularly true of developing countries, but it's not only a developing country challenge. The latest figures put total global debt over $300 trillion. That's three times the size of the global economy. So that can act as a real constraint on growth. We have concerns about investment. Investment remains too weak. Again, it's a legacy of the global financial crisis. Productivity growth as a result was weak. Haven't solved that problem. But there are countries that, that do better than others, China being an exception to that. One that the report focuses on particularly is the issue of inequality. We've been talking about the growing divide and polarization in and across the world for the last decade or more. And it remains as high as ever. And that's not only problematic from a social and political point of view, it's also problematic from an economic point of view. And clearly, there are drags on the global economy that come from these uh, divisions across and within countries. And policymakers everywhere talk about it, but we have not seen any sort of systematic action. The share of profits in output has been rising as the share of wages has been decreasing. And that has continued after the global financial crisis. And the problem there is that people spend out of their wages, 
savings are quite low, particularly in advanced economies, whereas profits get used for non-productive purposes, right? Companies are now buying back shares or they're stuffing it into tax havens around the world. They're not spending. And that is a drag on global demand. And you've seen that because wages essentially in many parts of the world have not kept up with productivity growth. And we need to get back to a world which was true before the 1990s, where productivity growth and wage growth moved in tandem. Well, how do we balance then the demands of recovery and climate change and development and overhauling what seems to be the financial system? We believe strongly that the place to start is with overhauling the financial system. That's true both domestically and internationally. I mean, a lot of promises were made after the global financial crisis, which was purely caused by private financial institutions and actors, that there would be serious reform to rein in the kind of speculative behavior, short-termist behavior that had proliferated under a highly deregulated financial system. We saw some legislation that was introduced immediately afterwards, but that's been rolled back by very intensive lobbying by uh, financial firms and interests. And until we address that problem, until we rein in this kind of speculative short-term financial behavior, it's very difficult to make the kinds of changes that we need to make to meet the 2030 agenda and to deliver the kind of finance for dealing with climate mitigation and adaptation. At the heart of the problem, I think, is this weakness in productive investment. The climate challenge is an investment challenge, right? We need to move into new energy systems or get out of fossil fuels into renewables. We need a different way of transporting people around. I mean, these are big investment projects that we're talking about, trillions of dollars. And governments need to do more to be able to deliver those investments. But we also need serious reform of the international and domestic financial systems to make sure that the financial system works to deliver productive investment. We need to see uh, reforms that can make markets less concentrated, more competitive, and more oriented to the needs of, of consumers and less to the uh, needs of shareholders. And that also implicates the international trading system too. So there's a big reform agenda that needs to be put in place if we're going to meet these aspirations that we've set ourselves to build back better and, and build in a way that is good for people and the planet. So Richard, you've talked a lot about overhauling the financial system. How can this help the debt burdens, for instance, that have been a big issue for developing countries? And also, we've got the higher interest rates causing a lot of pain, especially for developing countries. Yeah, obviously, inflation has been on policymakers' minds a lot for the last two years, because coming out of COVID, we saw a, a significant spike in prices, and that meant the cost of living across the world was a burden on household budgets. We were not happy with the response to that, particularly in the advanced economies, in which the sole response to that was to hike interest rates, which had a particularly 
burdensome consequences for developing countries because of the high levels of debt and because they borrow in dollars or euros. So if you've got to pay back in dollars or euros at higher interest rates, then you're squeezed fiscally in, in significant ways. You know, I think, at least in, in our interpretation, the spike in inflation did not come from the demand side. It came from a series of supply side shocks, the breakdown of supply chains during and after COVID, the increase in fuel and food prices as a consequence of the war in Ukraine and profiteering by large corporations. Those are the main drivers of inflation. Raising interest rates does not tackle those problems directly. It works by reducing demand in the economy, which means falling wages and weaker investment, which we don't think is a good thing when we want to see higher wages and more investment. So we don't think this singular focus on tightening monetary policy is the right way to go to tackle inflation. You have countries in the developing world for which half of their government budget goes to servicing their debt. That leaves almost limited amounts to increase spending on schools, on, on health, the basic public services on which the legitimacy of governments ultimately depends. I think that even if we tackle the inflation problem full on, developing countries are still going to face a major debt burden, obviously. And we don't have an international architecture still in place that can properly deal with sovereign debt problems. More and more countries are going into distress. More countries are in default now than they were before COVID. And the consequences of that are profound for countries that have to work themselves out of that kind of problem under the current uh, rules and practices of the international architectures. I don't think we learn from the global financial crisis, and that's a problem. I think more lessons have been taken on board from the COVID crisis. I think we would have to say not enough. Given the kind of challenges that developing countries, and as you said, we're not just facing one or two challenges, a multiplicity of challenges that are compounding and cascading and can't be really tackled in an ad hoc way, but need to be tackled in a much more holistic and systemic way. So some summering news and lots to think about there, Richard. Well, thank you so much. That was Richard Coselwright from UNCTAD, who was this week's guest. Tune into the weekly Tradecast next week and every week for more insights on the most pressing issues around the world of trade and development. And there's even more on our website, unctad.org. I'm Sarah Toms in Geneva. Goodbye for now. Thank you.